Heidi. And Melissa. And welcome to Beyond the Defense podcast. A special welcome to all of our listeners who are student affairs professionals and who are our topic of discussion for this episode. Today, we are joined by Dr. Matthew Nelson. Dr. Nelson recently completed his dissertation entitled The Role of Undergraduate Student Affairs Coursework in Aspiring Student Affairs Professionals Career Development. Uh, Dr. Nelson earned his PhD at the University of Nebraska, where he graduated in December 2020, and we look forward to chatting with him about his research today. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Nelson. Could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Matt Nelson. I use he, him, his pronouns. Um, I am a recent graduate of a doctoral program, question mark. That feels so weird to say. Um, but outside of that one identity, uh, I'm also a husband, a dad, um, and a student affairs professional. That's really what prompted me to, to want to pursue the, the doctorate. I've worked in higher ed for the past 10 years or so, mostly in residence life. Uh, so if anybody out there in residence life, uh, I hear you, I see you. My, let's see, my bachelor's is in education, uh, master's is in student affairs, and like I said, just finished the PhD in educational leadership. I guess one thing to say out loud is there's there's a thing called post-dissertation life, and it's glorious and amazing, and I hope everyone experiences that one day. But anyways, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's start by talking a little bit about your topic, which not surprisingly is related to student affairs. So tell us a little bit about how you chose the topic that you did. Yeah, great question. So my formal topic, uh, the, the dissertation is called The Role of Undergraduate Student Affairs Coursework in Aspiring Student Affairs Professionals Career Development. Oof, it's a mouthful. But essentially what I, what I wanted to study was how an undergraduate student affairs course uh, can influence career development among folks who might be interested in going into student affairs as a career field. Because I, I think it wouldn't be a surprise to say that student affairs is somewhat of a hidden career field. It, it's not something that folks <laughs> grow up uh, seeing on TV and saying, hey, mom, I want to be a student affairs professional when I grow up. Like they don't, You don't really experience that until you get to college and, and have an epiphany moment where you think, gosh, that, that's someone's job. Maybe I, maybe I want to do that. So anyways, uh, it's sort of a, a, a hidden career, right? And so it was interesting to me. Like I said, I work in residence life. I was at a resident assistant conference, uh, shepherding the, the staff to all of their different sessions. And of course, the institution that hosted was gracious and had a few advisor sessions, which is great. One of the sessions, the host institution was talking about their uh, kind of introductory student affairs course. And this is several, several years ago now. And I thought, wow, that's that's really interesting. I'd love to to be a part of that one day. And maybe my institution could could offer one of those experiences. And sort of at the tail end, I think sort of in jest, the presenter said something to the effect of, hey, you know, that'd be a great dissertation topic. It's like, oh, you know, you have those moments where when you're searching for what topic might interest you and what you can sustain for many years to research and write about and talk about, it needs to be something that excites you. And that was something that excited me. So what I was probably more interested, though, and as, as I dug into things was the word attrition. And, and when we think about attrition in the field of student affairs, lots of different studies out there. But it seems like the consensus sort of agrees that within the first five years of someone entering the field, they're gone. They've burnt out. Uh, they figured it's not for them. They didn't realize how little they'd get paid, maybe a host of things, right? 
And so that was what I was really interested in, in learning more about. But I also wanted to like eventually graduate and finish the dissertation, right? And so studying nutrition would have would take more time than I was willing to to wait around for my dissertation. So I think that this topic gets at attrition in some ways. It kind of gets it on the front end though, right? That how we socialize folks into the field of student affairs and what their expectations and outcomes might, perceived outcomes might be. Um, So that's really why I chose it. And it was a really interesting topic. I think that's what everyone says about their dissertation, but it was one that could sustain me for the period of time. And it was fun. Well, and it not only sustained you, but it brought you to the finish line. So that's a good, good piece of that, that puzzle. One thing you mentioned this essay, the Student Affairs 101 course. And for those of us listening today that aren't familiar with such a course, and and without giving too much away from your findings section, tell us a little bit about what this course entailed. I'm assuming it was a one credit or was it three? You know what? I think the it range, the range uh, depends on the institution, right? So, you know, if, if you folks out there, if you Google introductory student affairs course undergraduate, uh, you're going to find a, a number of schools have sort of investigated this and are offering this. So find Indiana University, you might find Georgia, uh, you might see something at Colorado State, you might come across the MOOC in that large online class offered. I think it is at Colorado State in conjunction with NASPA, but those are some things you might see. But I guess Essay 101 is sort of the broad term, generic term that I use to describe that introductory student affairs course for undergraduate students. Now, I think all of us, if if you went into student affairs and did a master's program, you probably had a similar course as a graduate student. And undergraduate course is similar. It contains a lot of the same concepts, just a little bit more watered down, a little bit less theory, still some theory, just to to give people a dose of what that's going to be like. A lot of reflection activities in response to uh, learning activities such as, you know, a guest speaker from a functional area, right? Sort of a tour of functional areas, I guess you could say. Because a lot of students, when you when you think about entering a career path, you kind of are pretty single-minded. I like residence life because I am an RA. Great. Did you know that you could also apply some of those skills in international student support services? Oh, no, I didn't even know that existed, right? Or, wow, I'm an honors student, but I guess I didn't realize that the honors program staff are also student affairs staff, even if they're not organizationally under the division of student affairs. I think there was there's certainly some of that just acculturation of terms and bureaucracies and structures uh, that happen in such a course, too. But that's I guess that's sort of the broad strokes. Certainly some theory, uh, very theory light, though mostly just exposure to what student affairs, what that word means and and what it could mean for them if they entered that field. Wonderful, wonderful. And a valuable experience, I'm sure, for students to kind of broaden their sense of the field. Let's talk about your methodology. So you did a single case study. How did you settle on case study for your dissertation? Yeah, great question. I cited a lot of yin. So if anyone's out there who's who's reading uh, yin, a lot of yin. I guess you could say, but case study really, for me, it was all about the detailed and rich description that you can, can really learn about and that context. That, those were really important pieces, right? So if we're thinking about, for me, it was the study of the course, right? It wasn't necessarily the students in the course. It was what's happening in this particular undergraduate course that um, could contribute to career development. So it was important that it was 
that I sort of dive in and, and understand all the intricacies of the course itself. And so to do that well, it needed to be a method that could provide that rich context and description. And, and case study ten was that, single case study was that. But for all of you out there studying qualitative methods, right? For a case study to work it has to be bounded well, right? We have to has to be pretty specific, right? So that we can get to understand the depth of information, right? That we're hoping to gather. So it was important that it was well-defined, well-bounded. Um, and those things I think I was able to do. My dissertation, if, if folks really want to go in and look, you can see sort of the parameters that I established to, to select the case, but it was the particular class course at one institution. And yes, there were embedded units of analysis within that, Specifically, six six of the 20 or 25 students in the class uh, agreed to participate specifically with me. And, you know, along with the case, it was looking at documents. It was looking at, so document analysis, interviews with those six student participants, and then observations as well, too. So lots of information. I think, you know, lots of successful things happen as a result of choosing case study, right? There, There's I guess for me, it was concurrent analysis as I collected information. So, you know, I'd start, I met first with the instructors and I said, hey, look, tell me X, Y, and Z about the class. And then that interview informed who I selected or for participants, which, you know, led to interviews. And then that first observation then informed the second interview. And then, oh, by the way, we've got some document analysis of certain assignments and that informed the next interview, right? And so it was this concurrent analysis was really interesting, very, I think very successful. Case study provided no shortage of data, right? There was lots of stuff. Uh, if anyone feels like triangulation is not a thing or data saturation is not a thing, that you should try case study. It will definitely lead you to be believers in that, but challenges too, right? Case study is very time consuming. There's just a lot of information to sift through. Um, good in a lot of ways, but challenging. The other challenge I think with case study is that there is a perception that it's harder to generalize based on one case. And so, you know, for me, my dissertation won't lead me probably one day to be a faculty member where I'll be pitted against another human who thinks case study is a joke and qualitative study is a joke, right? Like I probably won't ever be in that fight because I'll probably end up being more a practitioner. But I suspect that if I were to launch into kind of a faculty career, that that would be something I would need to uh, sharpen my uh, debate skills in because I think that's a real thing, that there are some definitely who still believe that uh, case study and qualitative analysis, maybe just, well, that's just not quite, that's not quite the same, right? The other thing that I'll say is that my study happened in the middle of COVID, which was fun, but that was, <laughs> that was a challenge for sure. Well, if you ever find yourself in that fight or debate, we will be right behind you defending qualitative research. Um, I'm getting my boxing gloves out. Yeah. I was like, someone going to take on case study? That's my friend. No. <laughs> Let me just cite more yin at you, right? <laughs> as someone who is doing a case study dissertation as well, like right. I have three books by him and I think that we're friends and I don't know if he realizes that or not. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You've talked very eloquently about the challenges and successes of using a case study. So we can move to your theoretical framework. So you used the social cognitive career theory by Lent et al., can you tell our listeners about that theory and how you settled on it? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so Lent, Brown, and Hackett, um, early 90s, uh, really off of the work of Arthur Bandura, presented 
three model social cognitive career theory. Essentially what it is, is that it explores the relationships between career interests and decisions with self-efficacy, with outcome expectations, and with personal goals. Um, so there, like I said, there are three different models, but each look at those three tenets, that self-efficacy, that idea like, can I do the thing? The second one being outcome expectations. If I do this, what might happen, right? And then the third, just more personal goals, personal values, and the relationship there. So again, they proposed three different models in their study, and I ended up choosing to use the, the second model. It was called their model of career choice. Um, and folks can go out to, to the original work and see the what the model looks like. But I guess the, the reason I selected this particular scholarship as my theoretical framework and that particular model is that it puts learning experiences in the center of the model. The, and what this should tell us is that the idea that a learning experience can influence my career interests and my career decisions. So what What's funny, though, is uh, not to critique the authors too much. They, they sort of just plopped it in there and didn't really talk about it at all. And there hasn't been a whole lot of use of the learning experiences piece of, of SCCT. And if it has been, it's been very quantitative and very singular point in time. So uh, by that, I mean kind of an instrument to assess self-efficacy or outcome expectations at one particular point in time versus something like what I utilized in my study where it was kind of multiple points in time over a, over a semester, right, to see that development. So that that was the, the framework that I used. I also liked not only that it's focused on learning outcomes, but it incorporates a feedback loop. So it's, you're going through these experiences and ultimately everything is constantly this kind of a circular cyclical uh, model that these experiences that you're having and what you're learning is informing then how you sort of crafting the direction that you would like to go and the interests and the decisions based on career and career development. So you have this rich data collection. You had mentioned you used interviews, observations, document analysis. How did you settle on using those three forms of collection? What were the successes and challenges of those data collection types? That is a good question. I don't really know how I ended up there. You know, when thinking about the case and it being a particular, you know, it's, a, it's an undergraduate course, right? What are all the things that go along with an undergraduate course and what might be my data point? So when, you know, kind of combing through that list, I don't know that I probably weeded out all that much, but, you know, documents started with the syllabus, right? And that really informed everything else. You know, what what assignments sound like? things that will give me some rich information about this class and the experiences of the students. Which classes, specific lessons, might be helpful to paint a picture of what's happening in this class? So really the syllabus was used as part of the document analysis, but also helped me map out how I would kind of plan and attack the the data collection itself. Um, It was all strategic. It wasn't happenstance. You know, the, the the assignments that were selected were done intentionally. The class observations were were intentional, but then, like I mentioned very briefly, this happened in the spring 2020 academic semester and got you know halfway through, and then the world sort of decided we were going to do some different things, right? So it ended a little differently than how I would have envisioned it, but it was still, I don't know that it impacted the study in such a way that made, made me doubt the outcomes or the findings. But 
yes, certainly a lot of document analysis, a lot of interviews, observations, very time consuming, right? Case study and qualitative methods just are that way. But there's some stuff that you just don't use, right? Like, wow, that's really interesting. I was just talking with my advisor about this. Like, look at all this cool stuff I found out, right? And like, that's really not related to your dissertation, right? Like that's fun and, and well, but how does that answer your research question? Well, okay, fine, you're right. Maybe they don't, but it's really interesting, right? And so uh, I guess those are opportunities that folks, if you have those aha moments to uh, use those as spinoffs, right? And and other areas you can explore, but yeah, it's super fun. I encourage everyone to try case study at least once. Maybe potential for a new journal article, right? Right, exactly. It's the gift that keeps on giving your dissertation. (laughs) You used a number of different processes of analysis. And and I will say before I kind of get into this question, you, your dissertation, one of the things that I really struck out to me in your chapter three was the tables that you had done outlining your data collection, outlining your, your analysis procedures and how wonderfully detailed and thorough those were. And they really assisted as you, as someone coming in and reading this document with no external understanding or knowledge of what you were studying, you could not leave that chapter without absolutely knowing the ins and outs of your methodology. So I tip my hat to you. So back to the question, you have three areas of data analysis. You used whole case, the whole participant, and then cross-participant. Would you do three again? Or on top of the fact that you are, you're doing this analysis, this concurrent analysis that you're, as you're facilitating the study, are you analysis out? I guess that is my question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yes, I am. Yes. Yes. I think that's true of everyone after you finish your dissertation too, regardless of the method that you chose to use. Uh, but but yeah, th- those tables arose really from my advisor, right? Challenging me that, okay, well, how are you actually going to, what, what is, will this actually produce? And how does collecting that, you know, doing that interview at that particular point in time or observing that class or collecting that particular assignment and reflection, what's that going to help you do? So that's really where those tables were born out of. But yeah, you're right. It, it led to analysis from multiple friends. Constantly had to remind myself with case study is, your study is the case. Whatever you've defined the case to be, that is what you're studying. And for me, it was easy to get lost in the, the experiences of the participants, which were embedded units within the case, but were not what I was studying. And that was hard um, and challenging. So the within participant um, and kind of a cross participant is sort of a kind of a, a nod to the idea that in a way, the six participants are mini cases in themselves. And you could you could use cross-case uh, or multiple case study and, and cross-case literature and, and methods in a single case with kind of these mini case studies too, right? So it's sort of a nod to that idea. And, and I would probably do it again the same way because it ultimately everything led up to the whole case analysis. I guess that the hard part was, as I mentioned a little earlier, you sometimes got lost in the weeds when you were focusing on the participant level, kind of those mini cases. My first entry into trying to write my dissertation, chapter four, was part of my analysis called for memoing. And those memos uh, led me to think, you know what, it probably makes sense that I create a profile for each of these six participants too. And what I, it was, it's wild. It was color coded and it was like after, because again, concurrent analysis, right? After the first interview, it was all, everything was black. The text was black. And then after the first assignment, 
those editions were like in purple, you know, and, and then there's observation one and oh, those notes on that participant were in green or whatever, right? And so it became very interesting, but the, I tried to turn those profiles and just sort of dump them into chapter four. And that didn't exactly work out. It was good. There was just too much detail. And so in that way, that those profile documents were the kind of within participant and cross participant levels of analysis, if, if that makes sense. But yeah, I got to the point where my advisor's review in chapter four is like, this is all good. And I need you to open up a new Word document and try again, right? And And not that you can't use the things, but what if we think about, and this is what eventually became the final version was, Rather than focus on each individual, start to finish, focus on start to finish and then put the individuals in, right? And that makes a lot of sense. I just didn't want to do that because I'd already written all this other good stuff, right? But that was how I, I figured out what was there. And that's okay. Uh, so if that happens to anybody out there and you need to kind of retool things, no, that's okay. Uh, it wasn't very much fun in the moment, but I think it led to a better end product. And that's sort of what it's all about, right? Well, I have to admit, if that if my advisor had told me I needed to open a new Word doc for Chapter Four, I I don't know that I don't know, <laughs> I don't know that I would be sitting here, Doctor Fisher, today. Um, but I did I did want to echo Melissa's thoughts on your your tables, your matrices in in Chapter Three because we hear so much about making the study so that it can be replicated. Right. And so being being really transparent with our process of analysis is a big piece of that. And that was something that my committee got on to me in my defense about. They're like, well, how did you actually do it? You, you, you give us like a sentence in your method chapter for how you process all of this data. And I had to add, I don't know, I think I added about three or four pages after that. Um, but I don't have fancy matrices. So I just kudos to you and, and Professor Niehaus on, you know, inserting those because I think they can be really useful for, for future students that, that do this single case study approach. So back to you, Melissa. Yeah, no, I think, you know, one of the interesting experiences that's come out of this podcast, and I feel like I say this every episode at some point, but we read a lot of dissertations and yours was the first, I mean, they're all really great. But yours was the first where I was like, oh, this would be very easy to replicate. You, you're giving the reader the data they need to do that. So that's really awesome. That's so nice of you. <laughs> With kudos to you for reading dissertations. At least someone has read it who's not my committee, right? Or skimmed. Skimmed is probably a better way to say that. <laughs> I, I, I should stop saying we read dissertations. We read chapter one, three, four, and five. <laughs> it's good. All in moderation. It's good. <laughs> I'm always like, I'm going to trust that there's a gap. <laughs> so sorry, lit reviews that have been put hours of work into. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we all know that life. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the statement about opening up a new Word document, I think doctoral programs are an exercise for humility and understanding that there have been moments where I have thought I'm amazing. And then one grade later, you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm not. That's always a really great moment when you're kind of brought to your knees. But I find that in those moments, we're always, we always rise to the challenge, right? Where we're, we find we're capable of doing things we didn't know we were capable of before. In your methodology, you talk a lot about your positionality as a researcher and your experiences, both as an individual navigating higher education, 
both as a student and as a professional. How did you bracket that positionality as you were doing your data collection and your analysis? That is super tricky, right? Um, And that's part of the reason why I'm pretty open about the positionality, right? Piece. And part of that was pretty close to it. I'm, I'm in terms of I'm studying something that I'm pretty close to, right? But also I had a member on my committee who felt I needed to develop that more. So what ended up being in the final version was not how I started. That was back at proposal stage. She's like, hey, you you need to spend some more time on this because you're a little too close to it. And we'll need to be careful of kind of how, how that plays out. I think for me, it would have been easier probably to inject more of my personal spin as the researcher in it if there were, if I were using quantitative methods, and there'll probably be people who want to fight me on this. So now I'm now I'm going against quantitative stuff. But if I didn't have the context, case study provided me so much, I mean, like it would, it would be hard not to say that I reached saturation, that, that it was very clear. And then there was the, the member checking that happened at the end of everything too. So I, I'd be interviewing a student, you know, we'd spit back out the, the transcript too. And there were tweaks and changes. And then at the very end, too, the same way, right? Here's what I've written about your experience in this course. Am I off base? Tell me more, right? Um, And so those constantly kind of challenged my, again, with concurrent analysis, you're constantly kind of interrogating the data, right? And um, while I don't know that anything surprised me, as in, I don't think that I... I illuminated a finding that I didn't expect. I don't think that's a condition of me having this grand plan at the beginning and and then proposed proposed an idea that I already knew was going to happen and then wrote about it at the end. I, I think the case study methodology allowed for those individual students, uh, the instructors' voices, both when they actually used their voice, but also when they wrote down things or when I would see them in class too. If there had been just one of those things, if I was only focused on interviews or only doing document analysis with assignments or only talking to the instructors, I think it would have been a slippery slope and my positionality could have injected more into how things played out. But I feel pretty good about it only because it, there, there really isn't another angle that I could have looked at it from that didn't verify another angle, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. So the flip side of that, how did your positionality assist in your research, whether that's in your analysis or your data collection or even you writing your findings? Yeah, it makes it easier to talk about, right? Because you know that the campus lingo or the the ideas that the students are talking about or thinking through and then having been in those shoes myself, right? Having never, I never took a class like that. That didn't exist. But the idea that I knew when they said in that first interview, I didn't really realize this was a career path. Like I know that because I said something similar probably as a, as an undergrad student like you. And it was hard not to inject that into the interview, right? So it was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting, you know, and secretly you're like kind of jumping for joy because you're like, I, I see myself in you, right? So I think that that helps just having a familiarity with what comes kind of the progression of things, right? That, I don't know, I think overall it just helped me if I had been completely kind of foreign to the, the notion of student affairs and what going into a career in student affairs would be like, I don't think I would have understood to the same degree and, and it wouldn't have helped the, the dissertation or the study. There is an element with student affairs. There's definitely a student affairs culture, but there's an element of that where 
you have to learn what all these things mean. My best friend jokes all the time from like when I was undergrad, like we were part of Kakur as our residence hall organization. And she would always just be like, which acronym conference are you going to this week? And it's just, it's so there's all these elements that I don't think people who work in higher ed outside of student affairs understands is the multi layers of so many topics that are covered under the concept of student affairs. It makes it very difficult for outsiders to come in and even understand what's going on. Right. Yeah. You're so true. Yeah. The <laughs> cooker, mucker, we're in mucker. Right. And uh, yeah, just all of the acronyms, alphabet soup, that, that's higher education in general, but <laughs> Well, switching gears to the funnest chapter of them all, chapter four, I I will say that the participant profiles that remained, I thought were very interesting and, and helped provide context about your findings. But tell us about some of the broader themes that rose to the surface for you. What really stood out to you in terms of your findings? Yeah, I, I think, again, the, the idea of looking at the course from kind of chronologically really helped reframe because I kind of got in the weeds, like I said earlier, right? You, wow, this is a really cool experience. You know, there, there's one student who sort of midway through was like, yeah, no, this, this is not for me. You know, <laughs> you need me to sort of be a counselor. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Right. And so that was a, that was a light bulb moment for them. So, you know, you kind of want to dig into the, some of those things, but structuring the, that chapter beginning through end helped me kind of see the I guess the larger themes at play, which I think for someone who's not interested in reading it, right, from start to finish, some of the broader broader strokes there, uh, the students in the class learned really what it what they need needed to know to be successful. Like, what is it going to take to be in student affairs? What are the the skills that I'm going to need to be successful, and then to be happy, right? They learned about some of those realities of the profession, which again back to when we, when we sort of started this whole thing, if I had grown up watching on TV or reading stories about student affairs professionals and what it might look like, I probably already know some of those things. But this is really the first, for many of them, the first experience that they're having where they're seeing some of that stuff that, oh, huh, you mean it's not an eight to five job and I don't like clock in and clock out and like, I'm going to get paid how much? Hmm, I'm not sure I'm interested in that. Or on the flip side, wow, I, I could get like tuition credit if I work at, at the institution. That, that's kind of cool, right? So learning just some of the realities. The same would be true of the, the notion of graduate school. There's some who would argue that you really need to go get your master's to be a student affairs practitioner. And then there are some who say, no, you, you don't really need to do that. Maybe that'll be in your future later. But what that, if, if that is thing that we're socializing students and student affairs to do or be part of the course looked at that. Here's what you, here's what grad school might look like and going through all of the hoops and logistics, right? Assistantships and internships and how much is it going to cost you? And you should really go try somewhere else, right? Don't stay here. But oh yeah, also you don't have to go get a master's, you know, sort of an afterthought too. So they're learning all these realities um, and really they're throughout all of this, they're reflecting based on just natural occurrences, I think, too, but also supported by the, the assignments that the instructors had, they're reflecting on if their personal abilities and values seem to align with the idea of, of becoming a student affairs professional. A lot of them talked about wanting to help others, right? 
And for some of them, that meant helping college-age students find maybe their purpose in life. And so student affairs might make sense. For others, helping other human beings didn't mean that. Uh, For one of them, uh, she was really more passionate about the criminal justice system. And that, again, the same concept, right, that you're, you're in a helping profession, but your spin on that might be different. And so I think overall, the, the course really just helped them tease out some of those things. And, and for me, I saw progression and regression. There were people who saw where those uh, connections were, and they were able to progress. Their self-efficacy went up. They could see themselves, those positive outcomes, some expectations. But then we also had folks on the other side, right? That I'm not really good at that, right? We talked about counseling, sort of pseudo counseling, right? I'm not really good with people. I I don't know that I can do this. And whether that person was right or wrong, it doesn't really matter. The point was that that impacted their self-efficacy enough that it made them believe that maybe this wasn't the right career for them, which is good, right? Uh, In fact, the instructors, when we first talked about the course and participating as sort of my case, right? They were okay with that, right? I'd be happy if someone goes into this class, loves it, and they want to go into student affairs and they'd one day be my colleague. I'd also, they'd also be equally happy, right? If they hated it and they, they found that this isn't for me and I need to go try something else. Because ultimately for me, you know, looking at attrition, that's what's interesting is does this help folks earlier on understand, yeah, maybe that's not for me. And then therefore reduces our attrition, you know, thereby increasing our retention in the field because earlier interventions existed that led you to maybe understand the realities and complexities maybe you didn't understand until your third or fourth year in the profession, if that makes sense. And that was actually one of the unexpected findings for me. My background is in education abroad, and there are these similar types of courses that a student will take the semester before they live abroad for a semester or a year. And they're designed to, you know, prepare them, but also kind of get them more excited about the idea of living abroad. And here we are in a course that presumably can get a student excited about working in student affairs. And in the case of, I think her name was Elizabeth, it was like the exact opposite. Was that surprising to you as a, as a researcher, as a student affairs practitioner? Well, I, you know, when I selected, it was purposefully sampled, right? And so my idea was when they, when I recruited students to participate, it was based on you know, they fill out a form to do the consent, right? Any Anytime you can double up on that consent form uh, is good. So they not only did they tell me the pseudonym that they wanted to go by, they also told me, what degree are you interested, right? Like, are you somewhat kind of leaning this way? Are you like not at all interested? Are you like, I'm going to go into student affairs regardless of whatever this course, ha-, you know? So at the beginning, not at, before the course even started, I had a framework for understanding what their expectations were. And so that allowed me to sample folks about half of them who were pretty invested and and the other half were sort of like, I'm not sure, right? And so that was a question I constantly asked throughout the study. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me that there were some who ended up saying, hey, maybe this isn't for me. I think what was sort of strange was there were some students who didn't take this class with any, like, not necessarily the six who participated, right? But the other students in the class, there are some who just were sort of there. That sounds mean. But like they, 
it was very much to check a box on the requirement. Maybe they had a relationship with the instructor and they liked them as a human, right? I don't know. I, I don't, I could never have seen myself taking a class just to take a class, especially when it's so career focused. Like if you have no interest in this, you should probably <laughs> go do something else with your time. But yeah, so seeing those kind of that, that purposeful sampling helped me understand, though Elizabeth, who you mentioned, right? She was one who was more passionate and then became less passionate, um, which again, good. I'm, I'm glad that they had that experience because she very well may have gone into graduate school, spent two years of her life and, and hard-earned dollars uh, going into student affairs only to say, you know, a couple of years later, gosh, I'm really burnt out and this isn't for me. This is one I expected and I can't see myself in here long-term. And I think sometimes my experience with new professionals who do leave after having maybe not as an ideal experience that they anticipated, it often taints their undergrad experience because they start questioning the, re the, the validity of that experience. You know, when I initially read the topic of your dissertation before the dissertation, I was like, oh, this is going to be one of those residence life courses where it come be an RA, it's great. But I appreciated the honesty that this course presented the field in because we do see a lot of students, a lot of first gen students too, who take out these massive amounts of loans because assistantships that pay your full tuition amount are very few and far between. So we have entire populations of people who are taking out massive loans to get these degrees, which the skill set is very transferable, but the degree is not always for outside employers. And we're setting up our most passionate students sometimes behind the eight ball just because we want them to go into this career. So it was really, it gave me hope that we're actually presenting this field in an honest light that sometimes a career in student affairs week does not. Totally. I think you're right. And, and one off, we don't, right? Like a student who says, wow, Matt, tell me more about like what you do. Wow, that sounds really interesting, right? Like, Yes. And there's a lot, like, that's the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of stuff that you may or may not like. There's stuff that I don't love, right? And and do the things that you love outweigh the things, that's that whole career development theory, right? That I don't think that there's one job out there for you that, or, or uh, vocation that all day, every day, you're going to be excited about and love every aspect of it. There won't be, but but generally speaking, do you feel like you have the skills and abilities to be successful? And will that profession provides you what you need to fill your bucket too. And, and you're right. I don't think the, the October careers and student affairs month things like don't do it that a course like this and intentionally developed with some academic credit behind it, those things can help, but, and we'll get probably get to this, but there are some things from the study, even if you don't have the luxury of having a course on your campus that you might be able to take from the findings to use with your mentees. If you have someone who's, hey, hey yeah, I'm, I am interested in student affairs. Great. Here are some things that we should do to make sure you have a full understanding of what that might be for you, uh, including not talking to me, right? And if, if it's an RA, say, right? Yes, come talk to me about a few things, but like we need to get you exposed to other areas because that was one of the big pieces of this course that it didn't really have a sense for what student affairs was, the broad scope. It was either, well, I work in admissions. So like I, I want to work in admission. Well, did you know that you could also work in residence life or in student conduct? Or do you even know what the dean of students office does, right? Early on in chapter four and your findings chapter, it, I, I sort of hit this record scratch moment when COVID hit and the class transitioned to the synchronous 
online format. And I think there's this whole other journal article or this whole other like piece that you can pull out of just, I mean, I was reading, I was reading your description of how no one talked and how your students were telling you, oh, it was so awkward because no one talked. And I'm thinking, yes, because you did not talk. But to share a little bit about that experience as a researcher that's observing and interviewing the participants here, what, what was that like in this, as part of this case study? Like moment, the things you draw from from that particular piece of it? You know, the first thing that I'm thinking about is, you know, since I, like I said, I'm a practitioner by day, right? So what are we doing on our campus? Oh, crap, we're closing. Okay. How do we move out 5,000, 5,500 students, right? And so I'm not even thinking about my dissertation in that moment. And then all of a sudden it must have slowed down enough. And then my advisor maybe emailed me too, like, hey, what, what is your uh, host institution for your study doing? I'm like, oh, shoot, they're closing too, right? And so it was uh, a lesson in flexibility and pivoting and all those uh, crummy COVID-related words, unprecedented and all that stuff. But yeah, it, it was not how I envisioned it. But the good part was that I think the instructors would tell you, and I would tend to agree, that it, it's not a course that should be delivered online, probably, because its strengths are in the discussion, in the reflection, and just sort of, I don't know, not that you can't do that online. I just, I think our students, especially our current students of today, they need to do it in person. And so thankfully they had a semester, half a semester where they were in person and they knew what, they got to know one another and could experience some of the course in person as it was intended for. But, you know, we pivoted into the virtual and yeah, it was very weird. It was most of the time, students were not on Zoom. Like their their uh, video was not on. They were muted. My later observations were it was so weird. You know, when you think about observation field notes, right? Like my in person field notes were like I sketched the lay of the land, right? And where so and so sat. Some of those intricacies they that didn't matter on Zoom, and, and in some cases I couldn't even see them. But so my field notes turned into they had their video on or they they left and they came back they didn't say a word or they chat they were using the chat pretty regularly so some of that stuff which was super interesting but i like i said i don't know that it impacted their their experience more than any other course in their schedule if that makes sense in fact for a lot of the students you know, early on in the pandemic is very different than what this past academic year was, I think, for a lot of students. So that that second half of that spring semester was sort of a giant experiment, right? That there were some professors and faculty members who who weren't prepared and didn't know how to, to make that transition. And in some ways, the instructors of this course maybe weren't ready for that either. In fact, at the end of the course, that was one of the observations or reflections of the one of the instructors. They're like, you know what, we're going to be better prepared in the future. To, to morph this, but they were one of few classes that did a synchronous concept. Most of the students talked about, no, we just sort of sort of turned stuff in for my other classes, or, or I listened to their recorded lectures or whatever. So in that sense, I was actually kind of surprised. I would have thought that more of their faculty maybe would just keep the same meeting time and continue, but that was not necessarily the case. Certainly a, a really wild time. That's a good way to put it. You mentioned, you know, you you had a variety of findings, and there are things that folks can take away in a practical sense, and we'll get to that in a, in a minute. But what are some of the findings that you had for your study that you feel like others could explore further 
maybe with other at other institutions or you know what what comes to mind in that sense yeah certainly well like you said it's a pretty uh, replicatable is that a word uh study you know it provides a lot of stuff i think in there necessary to be successful including the interview questions i don't know why it seems like and maybe they were just some of the dissertations that i looked at some dissertations don't put in the research, the, the questions that you use as part of your interview. I feel like that's a missed opportunity. So all my stuff's in there in the appendices, but I think a couple things. One, more research using longitudinal and qualitative methods to understand career development in this sense. I think there's a lot of, particularly on the career development side, more quantitative-based studies that just don't provide the same level of detail and understanding and just the whole scope. I think that would be one thing that I think folks can, that would contribute to the, the, the framework, the SEC2 framework, uh, but it also contribute to the body of knowledge on student, student affairs, firing folks as well. I think it could certainly be replicated at a different institution and in a different time, right? Again, that's not a secret. Mine, mine happened in the middle of a global pandemic. There are certainly things that I can't account for in the in the findings that someone else might be able to uncover uh, at a different place, a different case, right? At a different time too. But one thing I guess that I am excited about, because again, my one of my greater interests is attrition, right? And so how this might contribute to lowering the attrition rate among student affairs professionals. But I have a I built my IRB so that I could follow up with these students in a few years. So um, if feels like that'll probably go really quickly. I mean, they've already, it's already been a year since they took the course. So in theory, you know, one of the students went off to grad school and is done with year one of grad school, right? And so I think I called for three years out into a follow-up study. And so I think that will be interesting. And I think that could be something that other folks do, even if you didn't do a study ahead of time, right? Like if someone offers this course or a course like it, now, they could certainly double back. There is some uh, literature out there, very, very limited literature uh, about folks who have offered a kind of an undergrad student affairs course and have gone back to those folks who have taken the course just to see and check in and, and what, what they're up to these days. So those would be a couple of things I think folks could could do to advance this topic. Very interesting. Before you had mentioned one of the practical applications of your findings, thinking back, how would you like to see the information you found in this study used in the field of student affairs? I hope that it just kind of shines a light on whether it's a formal academic for credit course. It doesn't have to be that, but just that we spend a little more time thinking about how we're uh, encouraging folks uh, who might express interest in the field, how we're socializing them into the field of student affairs, and that we give uh, an honest depiction of what that might look like. And whether that's, again, whether that's through a, a, a course and for course credit, great. If it can't be that, how can we structure mentorship opportunities, shadowing experiences, whatever that might be, an intentional way so that folks go into the profession with their eyes wide open. It's interesting. You had touched on before the conversation about the, should people, should student affairs practitioners initially get a master's degree versus going and working and making the decision to go into the field. 
do you feel like this course that's offered based on your experience with your participants, do you feel like this kind of helps lessen the impact of students then getting that master's degree and choosing to leave the field? I think so. I think the course provides enough information, enough experience in sort of dipping their toe in the water to see if it actually would be for them rather than investing two years, traditionally two years of my life into something, which I think most folks have. I shouldn't say that. I don't know. I think from my experience, it seems like folks have a pretty positive experience in graduate school. But again, even in graduate school, there's plenty of research out there that says we're not socializing folks well enough in graduate school either. (laughs) So that when they get that first job, their supervisor is not going to ask them what their favorite student development theory is or to, you know, even some of the stuff we do in graduate research, uh, graduate courses, right? Thinking about, I remember being in the class where we, we were given a case study and the case study was you're the senior student affairs officer at whatever, whatever school, and you have to cut the budget. That's not something that I'm going to do within the first five years of my career. Do things in graduate school that will prepare me for what comes immediately after graduate school. Make that case study about you're an entry-level professional who has just been told any number of things. It just, we don't always do what we need to in graduate school to prepare us for our entry-level professionals first off. So I think that this is the same concept. It's just doing it even a little bit earlier so that folks can understand, well, maybe I need to know more about this and maybe I'll go out and get a job. Maybe I can be an admissions counselor at my undergraduate school and just kind of dip my toe in for a year. If I like it, great. If I don't like it, I didn't invest a bunch of time. Or maybe the course leads me to believe, gosh, I was really excited when we talked about theory and you know, I could see myself doing this for a number of years. Great then the master's might make sense for you. But we just ought to spend just a little bit more time on that process because our students don't know. It's not something, not like those who those students in a, who we work with who are interested in medicine, right? They have probably grown up their entire lives being somewhat interested in becoming a doctor, a medical doctor, right? I should preface that. But that doesn't happen for those of us who are interested in student affairs. So we just need to give them a little more time, a little more information. And I think that that'll do wonders. And even within the field of medicine, like we still lose students who two years in are like, this is not what I want to do. (laughs) Right. And and talk about money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Financial commitments all around. You had said earlier, and I, I really liked that you said this because this is something that I strongly believe. Students should not continue their education. If they want to go into student affairs, students should go to a different institution and experience a completely different institution for their graduate program than their undergraduate program. Because I think that is where a lot of that, the skill set that you get, that you need for your entry level years comes from the work experience that you have in your assistantship. And I feel, I know I did, I feel like a lot of us fall into the, the trap of higher ed is supposed to be like how my undergrad experience was. And until you break that and understand that higher ed is like nothing. Higher ed is how higher it is. And that it means, or student affairs is how it is at every institution different than the other. Even like institutions within the same campus organization, like I'm from Pennsylvania. So we have Penn State and we have Commonwealth campuses and main campus, and they're all very different and run things very differently, even though they're under the same structure. So I think the more quickly we can have students learn that, the better. Yeah. But I don't know that the course necessarily, maybe a little bit touched on culture of institution, but I think that's so true too, right? That 
you, it still might be the right career path for you. You just might not be in the right functional area. You might not be at the right school, right? And, and it might take you a little bit of time to figure that out. But again, we don't necessarily talk about that. It's sort of contingent on finding a supervisor or a mentor that has maybe had some of those experiences or can coach you through some of those things. Because, yeah, I, I, I think I experienced that a number of times. It wasn't so much that, not the profession. The profession is enriching for me. It's who am I working with and do their values align with mine? It becomes more personal, right? Our egos get in the way. And that's maybe something folks realize as you get farther along. Well, I think even getting back to this course, so much of my work now works with students in developing their professional identity and what their values are. And for my subset of population, it's medical students. And like when you do your residency search, when you're ranking those schools or the schools, the institutions, the hospitals, how are you ranking institutions that match your values and what you place on importance? And I think one of the things that this class can start is that conversation about looking at the field. What are your values lining in? Is it a functional area that you have no experience in, but you really love engaging people? You love the idea of sharing the ca- a campus with someone. Well, that's admissions. Are you number bit driven? <laughs> like that's admissions. Um, do you like interacting with people in a formal setting? Like maybe that's fundraising. All these very stereotypical descriptions of non-functional areas I've never worked in. <laughs> but I, I think that this class and the research that you've found Um, the findings really have a lot of other practical applications and how we can strengthen the field. I like it. The one thing I do worry about is the student affairs bottlenecks, right? Pretty heavily from entry level to mid-level to senior level. Does the field need students choosing to go into student affairs with the intention that they're going to leave in like two or three years? Yeah, you're probably right. There's probably some of that, you know, as I, like I said, I've been in student affairs for 10 years or so. And yeah, the jobs become fewer, right? You wait around a little bit, a little bit longer for things. You become pickier, (laughs) all those sorts of things. So yeah, you're, you're probably right. There is probably some infusion of workforce development that probably ought to inform some of this research too, that what's the number of folks we actually need in our workforce and what skills and, and, you know, knowledge, skills, attitudes, do we need from them. But you're right. There's just, it becomes, and some of the attrition probably, right, relates to that. I just sort of feel stuck. And yeah, you're probably right. We should, that is an area for future research, right? As a, as we answer questions in our dissertation defense that, uh, we, that are outside of our scope, that would be one. That was something I didn't consider and uh, would certainly be interesting, though. Well, speaking of that, I was going to ask you, like, it sort of struck me as I was reading through your dissertation that there's other ways to analyze this massive amount of data that that you've amassed. I, you know, I was particularly thinking, okay, so this is ripe for phenomenology because you have these multiple interviews throughout um in addition to the other data, you know, your observation data and your documents, you know, could we just, could we look at the phenomenon of being in this course or being in this course and then having a pandemic hit? 
Could we look at, since you like so much writing up stories about your individual participants, could it be a narrative inquiry? So I don't know if you have extra time on your hands to, to, to write some more, but um, had you, had you, do you have plans? Do you have other research that that's on in the back of your mind as to what you might, might, might do in the future? Yeah, good question. It's funny you mentioned some of those other methodological approaches, right? There were more than one occasion where my advisor mentioned, well, hey, you could consider this other methodology. You could consider narrative writing. We could we could look at how you might analyze some of that. I said, "Well, that's really cute. Thank you very much for that. I'm pretty well uh, like like waist deep into the case study concept right now. So like I'm gonna stick with that. But thanks very much, right? But um, I am kind of right now. I am working to determine next steps, right? My wife will joke with me. She's like, "Well, you wrote a book, and that's what the kids understand. I have a six year old and a three year old, so." This is the this is the office where where it happened right and where I spent many uh, many an hour and so when it became real and toward the end it was well I'm right dad's writing a book right like it's just easier to say that and so my wife will say hey, what you know like are you gonna how can that book make us money right so ingest right a little bit but um, I met with my advisor recently just to say hey well what's next like what do I do with this how do I it's, I'm glad, I'm glad it's done. And I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. But like, it seems silly that I don't do anything else with it. So we talked through some couple journals that might be interested in this uh, research. Uh, so I need to kind of figure out what that is. Again, she, her recommendation was, again, don't, don't try and just copy and paste large chunks of your dissertation. That's not going to work. You're going to quickly reach your word count limit, right? So that's one avenue I'm going to explore. I think now that things are kind of, we're reopening some of our uh, conferences again, post-pandemic. I don't know if we can say post-pandemic, but it seems like there are uh, more opportunities maybe to travel now than there were six months ago, 12 months ago. But, you know, what what conferences might be interested in such such research and the findings? For me, it's probably ACPA or NASPA probably make the most sense, even at a regional level, could be interesting just to start conversations about those things. And then kind of outside of this, I'm still just trying to stick my nose in my advisor's studies and research just to, I don't know, it's, again, it seems silly to just sort of stop doing things just because you're done. So that would be nice, though. It'd be okay to like take a break, right? A well-deserved break. But I'm glad to hear you say you're interested to keep going because I think a lot of the folks we've had on the podcast are like, no, it's done. It's on the shelf. I'm over it. And I'm like the exact opposite. I'm interested to see where Melissa will go. But I'm I'm like, no, let's do more research. What other questions can we ask? So, yeah, I'm excited that that you're on this team. I, I have the weird position of my administrative position as a faculty appointment. So I have, I have to research. I have this mm-hmm. temporary, like my boss is not asking me questions about it. She's telling me not to do things because she's like, you have to finish school. But I will, I, there is a research component of my evaluation, the matrices that I have to hit. So I will continue to research. I, I've In the back of the notebook I use, I have a list of topics That'll come up in a meeting and I'm like, research agenda. I'm very encouraged and I hate the term practitioner researcher because we're all researchers. It's just, do you have a faculty job? Do you have a job where you're an administrator or a practitioner? 
I think we, it's, it's one of those areas that, you know, our country is really good about like finding divides. Um, and this is a, this is an unnecessary divide. We are all researchers. We're all conducting research. The last question, how I'd like to wrap up this conversation is having experienced the doctoral journey yourself and in your well-deserved moment of rest, what are pieces of advice that you would have for individuals who are currently in the process of getting their doctoral degree? I like that. I guess my piece of advice, if you're working on a dissertation, would be, you know, you got this. This is not a test of intelligence. It is a test of endurance. And um, I think I think somewhere in my the first couple pages of my dissertation, I wrote about the dissertation and and the whole journey being like a marathon. And let's be clear, I am not a runner. If you see me running you should be running too, right? So I'm not a marathon person, but um, I like the metaphor that you know, the whole journey is a marathon. You're, you're going to sprint sometimes and you'll jog sometimes, you'll walk sometimes, might even crawl a couple times and there will be times you just stop and that's okay. Uh, again, it's not, not a test of intelligence. It's a test of your endurance and you can do it. And it's okay if you take a little break or lean on somebody for help stop for a water break or whatever, right? Keeping the metaphor going, but use, you know, use your resources. If I can be of any help, I may know nothing about the method that you're utilizing or your study or your, your sample, but it's a community, I think. And we ought to, if the pandemic has taught us nothing is that our world is a lot smaller and we should lean on each other more often. So that's my advice. You got this. You can do it. I believe in you. That was very beautifully said. Thank you for spending time out of your weekend talking to us about your dissertation. It was wonderful conversation. Yeah, no, this was super fun. Like I said, my so my program was almost entirely online. There were a couple of times that we got together. Um, there were some residency, right? But those were sort of week long in the summer. And so again, now it's so typical to use Zoom and to talk and, and to do more synchronous things, but that wasn't always the case you know, and that's not even that long ago, but I wasn't, I was used to typing about my research or research concepts or methodologies, but very rarely did I ever feel like I said anything about them or, you know, you'd read something and be like, I don't even know if I could pronounce that, you know, and, and the kids don't want to hear me talk about it. And and my wife is very gracious, but I don't, I was like, I'm not going to bore you about this. And so it's fun. I guess that's what I'm saying. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to say some words out loud to people who weren't my committee. So I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you again to all of our wonderful listeners. Please remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast. New episodes are released Fridays. Be sure to follow the Beyond the Defense podcast on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information if you would like to share your research. We'll see you next week.